and welcome to another episode of the Feminist Survival Podcast. Uh, this is just a little addendum to our How to Listen to Your Body series. I think of it as an epilogue. It's, it's a little epilogue, yes. Because sometimes your body is wrong and you're listening and you're like, wait, but that's not right. Like sometimes when you're the puppy and your owner is telling you, go outside, go outside, go outside. And you're like, but there's something wrong outside and I can't go outside because of a problem that I perceive that you don't then you should not be listening and you need to somehow communicate no 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 there's information that i have that you don't have and we need to get this sorted out so sometimes you're not you you shouldn't listen to your body sometimes it's wrong and sometimes it lies to you and you have an analogy emily about um loki well anyone who has seen loki knows that so this is on on, on disney plus yeah. It's about Loki, who is a character from the Avengers series. He is the god of mischief, because mm-hmm. that's a thing. Uh, and he is he's a, an untrustworthy scamp. <laughs> he's a liar, and he cannot be trusted. Mm-hmm. And in the Disney Plus show, he goes to a world where he is confronted with many different Lokis. All the different Lokis that have ever disrupted the sacred timeline. From like different, from different universes, from different dimensions, or however you want to think about it. Right. And you've heard us, if you've heard other episodes of the podcast, you've heard heard us talk about internal family systems and parts work, where you go to like meet certain parts of yourself. And in the last episode in particular, we talked about how in Jungian analysis of stories and dreams, every part of a dream or a story is a part of the main character mm-hmm. um and here they're making it nice and explicit every totally literal part yeah. like there it is like it's like you're meeting the parts of yourself loki is meeting different versions of himself different parts of himself and he has relationships with these parts that are complicated by the fact that he is a trickster he is he can't be trusted yeah and so i thought of amelia and her her sense that like sometimes her body lied to her yeah, like when he introduces two of the selves he gets closest to, he says, uh, this is us as a child and this is us in the future. It's like, in case you were just weren't sure that they literally <laughs> what the, what meant the metaphor it, was. They, like, they made it nice and explicit for you. Yeah. So, and also an alligator. And, and, and then also an alligator. Because <laughs> that's how it happens sometimes. Because sometimes there's an alligator of you. Yeah. Best not to question it. So, so Loki's a trickster. He's a liar. He can't be trusted. And there are some ways in which your body, especially now with your chronic fatigue and pain, is a trickster, is a liar. Yeah. And what they're clear about in Loki, so the Richard E. Grant future Loki in particular, is entirely explicit <laughs> about the fact that what the timeline dictates is that Loki must be a loser who is alone forever. Mm-hmm. And if he dares try to connect and not be alone forever, the timeline kills him. Yeah. And so his role as a trickster and a liar is underpinned by this fundamental fear of being alone forever. Mm-hmm. That is why he is a trickster and a liar is because he is afraid of being alone forever. Which they have also reinforced and made clear in previous episodes. Over and over and over again. Over and over and over, yeah. Like, they did not try to pretend that this was about anything other than, like, the psychological internal experience of, like, how much Tom Hiddleston loves playing Loki, basically, is what... (laughs) It was like, Tom Hiddleston loves Loki. Yeah. 
seven episodes or whatever it was of how much Tom Hiddleston loves Loki. <laughs> and how much time he has spent thinking about why he's a trickster, which is why the first episode is like, do you like killing people? No, I have to because it's part of the show. Yeah. Because he doesn't want to be alone forever. And so this is his defense against being alone forever. Um, and so we can have compassion for the totally untrustworthy Loki, but that doesn't make him more trustworthy. And so Amelia, your body with, with your chronic pain and your chronic fatigue mm -hmm. and all the other ways in which your body is has been complicated by the ways it's been damaged uh, is a trickster, a liar. Yeah, and I think that this is a really good time to go into um, the signs of neuroplastic pain because we're not saying that there's some kind of metaphorical thing going on. There's a literal mechanism. Oh, yeah, it's a literal that, mechanism. That makes your brain try to convince you that it's in danger. Do you want to describe that or should I? No, you you need to do it because you're the science one. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to make it as simple and accessible as I possibly can. Please do. So imagine that you're like a healthy, normal central nervous system functioning in a body that is healthy and normal and just regular and everything. And the body that you, the central nervous system, are inside gets damaged in some extreme way. Let's say childbirth. Like enormous amounts of pain because of enormous amounts of labor and potential for death right? Mm -hmm. Like huge amounts of pain. And maybe there's even like a medical intervention that has to happen because of how much damage there is. There's yeah. sewing a, an episiotomy, for example, right? Like huge. For most of history, childbirth was the number one cause of death for women. Yeah. Like it's incredibly dangerous for us as a species. And so like you have the baby and your body works really hard to repair the damage that was done. Like your immune system gets to work and your musculoskeletal system participates and like everybody is like working hard to rest at the same time that you're like raising a brand new tiny human. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the fact is a lot of the healing, like most of the almost all the healing is going to happen within six months. If after six months your tissues are healed, the peripheral part of, of your nervous system, your body itself is healed so there is no damage left there's maybe some scar tissue but there's no damage there's no injury still extant there right you may still be experiencing pain there because here's what happened to that perfectly normal central nervous system in a perfectly normal body that experienced a massive trauma the brain went whoa <laughs> shit massive trauma is a thing that can happen and it changes the way it interprets the sensations that happen, particularly in those damaged body parts, so that it reduces the threshold at which it's willing to interpret a sensation as dangerous and painful. Because it does have the choice in case, it, do, it does have a choice in deciding how much pain it will tell you is dangerous amount of pain. Yeah, it can move it around. So at yeah. first, when you haven't experienced trauma, and you've like sort of lived a life where you've had injuries in the past and healed from them and your brain now knows that like injuries can happen and when you take care of them, they heal. So your brain has learned a particular threshold. So when sensations get sent up to your brain, the sensation is like, so uh, here's something that's happening right now. Uh, is this pain? Is this a problem? Is this, I think, I think there might be some danger here. 
your brain has sort of a threshold that a sensation has to cross in order for you to be like, yeah, that's pain, that's danger, that's a problem. Let's send the pain danger problem signals. And where that threshold is, in fact, moves around from day to day, month to month, year to year, life season to life season, because the it's contextually sensitive. It recognizes that uh, when you are in the middle of a high threat, high stress scenario, the likelihood that a sensation is a problem, is dangerous, and should be interpreted as pain, that threshold gets lower because the likelihood of that being any sensation being a sign of a problem is greater because you're under threat, right? Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course. Okay. Whereas if you're like calm, happy, relaxed, blah, 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 the likelihood that any particular sensation is a problem or a threat and should be interpreted as pain Mm -hmm. is much lower. So the threshold is higher. So as an extension of that, so let's try another example. If there's a, you know, a worldwide stressor, like a global pandemic where there's... Just for example, random example. Random impossible thing that might happen, maybe, is that on the news every day, all day, there's stories of how many millions of people have died from this disease and uh, around the world and everyone's locked down and your whole life has changed. Your day-to-day living has been turned upside down so that you can no longer function the way you used to function. That might be like a stressful situation that puts your body on alert. Yeah. Your brain's threshold goes down and is more willing to interpret a particular sensation as a problem or a threat and interpret it as pain. Because it's like, shit is going wrong. Be on alert. Bad things are happening. Yeah. And so it's like, I'm going to interpret that as pain. So if it's a global pandemic, if it is a traumatic injury, those are all things that reduce your brain's threshold for interpreting a sensation as painful. So then say you get that infection and it's actually very mild and, you know, it stinks to be sick in bed, but like, it's fine. You've been, you've had that kind of illness before, but then after it's over, your body has healed from the infection, but it's still telling you that something's wrong. This is when your body's lying to you. Nothing's wrong anymore, but it's still thinking, well, there was this huge global pandemic and we're under so much stress and I have to fight, 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 And you're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. And then it's like, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, this bad thing happened and I'm going to continue interpreting sensations as if the bad thing is still happening. The infection is over, but I'm going to interpret your body signals as if you are still sick. The pregnancy and childbirth has been healed from, but I'm going to continue interpreting sensations in those body parts as if the injury is still there because that's how important an event it was. Okay. So it's adaptive in its way, except that it results in you experiencing pain that is not related to any existing injury. Yeah. This is why it's called neuroplastic pain. It exists physically in the infrastructure of the relationship between your peripheral system, which is your body, and your central system, which is your brain and spine. Like it's a physical thing that exists. And yet it is all in your mind because your mind is like your embodied brain. Uh, So yeah. Yeah. All pain happens in the brain. All pain happens in the brain, regardless of the nature of the injury that activated it. 
and your threshold for interpreting a sensation as painful is going to vary depending on the context, right? And sometimes your brain turns into, it's not so much a liar as it is convinced that something is wrong. Yeah. Because something was wrong. It's mistaken. Yes. Sometimes your body's wrong. And uh, I would go ahead to extend the, the Loki analogy. A system like yours, which was damaged literally at the moment of birth, mm -hmm. I'm going to say, had the Loki syndrome of, like, I'm afraid I'm going to be alone forever, and so I'm going to be a jokester, a trickster, and a liar and cannot be trusted. Yeah, um, for just to, to make it clear, when I was born, I didn't breathe for the first five minutes that I was out in the world. So yeah, I had this is a kind of like birth trauma thing that's always been known is known to impact people's well being over the course of their whole lives. Yeah, there's a chapter on birth trauma in Stephen Porges's The Polyvagal Theory. If you want to know more about like the sciencey stuff, it's pretty intense. Yeah. And I did not have that. No. And I have this relationship with my body. Yeah. Yeah. It's like hypersensitive relationship so with like, my body. One way that identical twins have very different experiences of the world is from the very first moment of their existing in the world. Yeah, if their births are really different, which ours were. Yeah, then their then their response to, to trauma, pain, illness is going to be different. Yeah. So one of the people are like, why are you so different if you're identical twins? Well, this we think is probably the reason. Yeah. I mean, the first reason, you know? Like we have a shared environment insofar as we were raised in the same household. Yeah. But literally the very first thing that happened to our bodies yeah. was opposite. Right. So our, tr our training and what we became. Anyway, so can we talk now about uh, the manifestations of incomplete stress response cycles when stress ends up stored in the body and we end up with chronic pain due to stress? Oh, you do that. Yeah. Well, for me, my story of how I started to learn this, this is the origin of the book, is that I was having all kinds of pain, chronic pain. I had knee pain, shoulder pain, back pain. I got back spasms ever since I was like 22. And I was given a book by a Tai Chi instructor that was a little dodgy. Like the science in it was not 100% gold. But a book that it's like is The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, um, where he talks about how the mind holds on to emotions and how bodies end up holding pain that was us what we we think of as a psychological experience becomes a physical experience did that make any sense at all i don't i can't tell i'm too close to it okay well i read this book and in the book which i don't recommend but in the book it said that the experience of chronic pain is a result of our internalized unacknowledged rage and it was very specific about the word rage and uh, like just looking at that and the idea that rage is held in my body and can result in my experiencing pain was um it was hard there was a lot of crying and then i called emily and was like are you telling me that the my pain is my ra unacknowledged rage my repressed rage and you were like how did you not know that literally how did you not know that like you're a conductor you talk about it you practice tai chi and yoga <sighs> Have you been doing all these things, not recognizing that what you're doing is like processing the emotion that lives in your body? Yes. Yes, I was. Yes, you I were. Was. Yes, I was. That's it's, exactly it's what I was doing. hard for me to understand. Yeah. But I mean, once I just even acknowledged the pain in my knees is not structural, 
Like, there just is nothing wrong with my knees. And once I started telling my knees and just having a conversation with them saying, yeah, there's nothing wrong with you. You're structurally fine. Like, the pain that I experience is actually my rage. And I get that. I mean, the kind of structure thing in the book is that your body uses the pain to distract you from the rage. So you start focusing on, I got to heal my knees and I'm going to make my knees better and fix this structural problem. And uh, when in fact, what you will be better for you in the long run is to say, hello, knees, there's nothing physically wrong with you. Let's talk about the pain that you're hiding with the knee pain. Let's talk about the rage that you're distracting me from. Yeah. And um, th that was a great framework and very helpful to me, you know, just going for a run and saying, knees, I hear you. I know you're called, you're going sharp, stabbing pains, and but there's nothing wrong with my knees. And after, I'm going to say maybe three to five weeks of really intensively just talking directly to my knees and saying, there's nothing wrong with you. It's rage. And thinking about what causes me rage and acknowledging that I'm carrying rage around with me, inside me all the time. Mm -hmm. I've, I haven't had knee pain since. And what's going on neurologically is that when you run, you have sensations in your knees. That is true. But your brain was in a state such that it was interested in interpreting those sensations as pain because it believed more or less any sensation that it recognized was a threat and a danger yeah. because your whole body was just full of threat and danger. Yeah. And that repressed rage you were carrying around translates into a neurological state threat. of yeah. high stress activation. It is the fight yeah, activation exactly. of the fight or flight system. So when you yeah. have this high stress context, which you have by nature of the fact that you're carrying around a whole bunch of incomplete stress response cycles, like most people, your brain can only interpret sensations as pain. Yeah. And you got to be like, hi, pain. You're not pain, you're a sensation. You're interpreting it as pain. You're telling me it's pain because I'm in this high stress brain state. And what I'm going to do is by recognizing that actually I'm carrying around a whole bunch of rage. I'm going to like titrate my exposure to my own rage. Yeah. I'm going to like give myself tiny little bits of it to process and release. Okay. Process and release. That's, little that's bits. not what I did. That's oh, not no? what I did. What I did was like. Open the floodgate. Oh, I, I, there, I had no choice. There was, no, I had to go exploring for it. It wasn't bubbling out over. It wasn't a matter of titrating. It was a matter of oh. go looking for it. Somebody okay. told you it was in there hiding and you're like, okay, so the knee pain is, is telling me that the rage is there. Yeah. And you're like, let me go see if I can find some rage. Yeah. And where did you find it? It didn't feel place-like. It was in my thoughts and my memories and stuff. Weird. I know that you would experience it as some kind of physical sensation, but I was just like, I had to dig up memories of why I would have rage. <laughs> yeah, it's like so you have to easy. go back to the moment. <laughs> yeah, when I repressed. When the rage was activated. Yes. You have to open the door to that. I mean, like, I always interpreted your brain as a physical space where you go exploring, like it's a house and you got to go yeah. in the basement and like open all the boxes of junk that's been no. collecting dust for 30 years. No, it wasn't you, like that. No. No. For me, it's like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, see, we're so different. Yeah. So 
Listening to my body told me that my knees hurt and I need to get medical attention and have physical therapy for my knees. My body was not exactly correct. It was, it had, it had reasons and there were things happening, but the direct obvious answer was not the thing that I actually needed. So just listening to my body going, I'm going to solve this pain problem with medical intervention was not helpful. I had to, somebody told me, hey, that, that, that knee pain is manifested repressed rage. And so now when I listen to my body, when it, my body shouts at me for stupid reasons, like I shoveled snow, so my shoulder hurts for four months. Like that is not because I damaged my shoulder, right? Like yeah. I didn't do anything out of the ordinary with my shoulder. That sharp stabbing pain is a manifestation of a distraction that my body wants to like ignore the rage that I feel. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, that's like a whole it's kind of It's not because of your rage, it's because of your shoulder. Right, right, exactly. No, no, no. You Think need to get surgery on your Think shoulder, about the shoulder. because about your, your shoulder. shoulder is what's wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely don't think about, you know, <laughs> childhood trauma. Definitely don't think about that. Yeah. And it's a protective thing. And I'm, you know, like, thanks, puppy owner, for trying to protect That's me. That's the thing, is you could be grateful to your body yeah. for attempting to protect you. Yeah. But the fact is, it's uh, a trickster and yeah. cannot be trusted. Right. Because it's terrified of being alone forever. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That doesn't, and understanding that motivation does not make it more trustworthy. No. And it also doesn't make me any better at trusting. Right. Which is the other, one of the other main Loki, Tom Hiddleston Loki, uh, cannot be trusted. And girl Loki cannot trust because she's been, she's had her trust violated so many times. And so, therefore, they could never be together. Or can they? And it gets a little, like, creepy from there. Yeah, it's a little... Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's a narcissist thing. He falls in love with his reflected self. Own reflection. Literally! Literally a reflection, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so now I am having the post-COVID or long COVID, whatever they're going to call it, um, fatigue and joint pain and brain fog, which are real things that I actually experience. But... I'm experiencing them because my nervous system is freaking out in ways that are actually not necessary. And so I'm trying gradually, like I told my knees, like that's, there's nothing wrong with the knees. It's the thing we got to look at. That's the distraction. And uh, so I'm trying to like get in touch with my nervous system and be like, hey, I know, I know you think we should lay down all day. I know that you think that. And I know that, you know, you get easily exhausted by doing, you know, easy tasks but um but like nothing's wrong so go ahead and pump blood all the way up to my head that would be awesome thanks for that that'd be great but it's so slow going and it's made harder by the fact that i have the brain fog so it actually is harder to focus (laughs) like when i dealt with my knee pain and it was three or four weeks and i was like well ish and i no longer had knee pain you know i was really focused on it i was in my doctor program like i was focused i was intensely hyper focused on everything and with my autistic best self and uh, i i don't have the same access to that because of the brain fog so i'm trying to get rid of the brain fog too but even having the brain fog makes that it's very complicated and difficult is what i'm saying could you maybe address the brain fog first because that is also a manifestation of your brain being like everything is wrong yeah i could 
Um, in fact, I learned from my physical therapist that speech therapists help with cognitive problems like brain fog. So I'm on the list where I live. There's not a lot of resources for healthcare. So I'm, I'm, on, the, I'm on the list to meet with a speech therapist who's going to help me convince my brain that it's not broken. Yeah. Then again, there is the physical issue of the fact that, like, my body incorrectly thinks that it shouldn't be pumping blood the way it's supposed to pump blood. And uh, and it's genuinely not getting enough blood to my brain. So I do need to deal with that. It's the orthostatic intolerance is the mm -hmm. thing that's happening because my blood pressure is not well regulated. So I do need to fix that so that there actually is enough blood in my brain for it to function properly. Yeah. Um, so it's it's super complicated. It's a lot of systemic, large-scale things all interacting with each other, but trying to untangle the ways that my body is wrong and convince it, gradually show it, look, we can do things. See? We're fine. And then sometimes it retaliates hardcore, like... One day I went to physical therapy and then I went shopping for chairs and I was in bed for three days after that. Like, sometimes my body's really convincing. It says you need to lay down. And I'm like, oh, you, yes, that's clearly true. But I know it's, it's, oh, it's so hard. Yeah, fatigue is very complicated and difficult. So I wanted to make this addendum episode about like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We spend a lot of time trying to listen to our bodies. And then sometimes we learn that our bodies are wrong. Yeah. Sometimes the owner tells the puppy to go do a thing and the puppy's like, no, 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 that's a terrible idea. I'm not going to do that because the puppy has information that the owner doesn't have. And like we have to communicate and tell each other, hey, here's all the information we both have. Let's come to an understanding of reality by combining our resources. Right. Let me just make the necessary caveat that not all chronic pain and fatigue is neuroplastic. No, uh, I'm always drawn to the example of Jessica Kelgren Fozard, whose YouTube channel is very entertaining and has a lot of great hair tutorials. But because she has neurological disorder and a connective tissue disorder, yeah. her experience of chronic pain and fatigue is based on the fact that her body is always trying to fix itself, even though it is not fixable. Yeah. So a lot of her energy is going to just like maintaining her survival and existence. And that is why she has fatigue. Right, exactly. Right. So like, Sometimes there are organic issues underlying yes. pain and fatigue. In Amelia's case, there is not. Sometimes the problem is structural. And I've had structural pain that lasted a long time. Like my digestion was screwed up because there was stuff wrong with my guts. Right? Right. You know, I have endometriosis. There's stuff in my abdomen that's not, <laughs> just doesn't do great when it's yeah. there. Um, is there a relationship between your stress and the processes of endometriosis and the experience of the symptoms yes but yes. it's there's other stuff too like i can minimize the experience of unpleasantness of the endometriosis but but that does not cure endometriosis it does not exactly it's always going to be there my experience of it could be pleasanter when i take the time to make sure that i'm doing the things that are good for me like meditating and you know getting comfortable amounts of exercise and not eating sugar and you know feeling my feelings and completing my stress response cycles right. like if i'm doing like if i'm perfect in every way i could probably get through a period without laying in bed with a heating pad for two or three days right but like 
none of us is that perfect. Yeah. None of us has that much control over our lives that we can be that diligent and prioritize ourselves so perfectly. Like, you know, stuff goes wrong. And so, yeah, your point is is a really important one. There's there's definitely times when chronic pain and illness are structural and you got to get that is a, a medical intervention. It's a primary place of resistance when people hear this idea of neuroplastic pain that because what they hear sometimes is like, it's your own fault. You just yeah. need to change your mindset about the pain. Yeah, and yeah, like, yeah. no, one, your brain learned for good reason yeah. from actual lived experience that the world is a very dangerous place. And two, just because you change your mindset doesn't mean you've changed your genetics. It doesn't mean you've changed the toxins you've been exposed to. It doesn't change the that you're in the midst of a physical disease process. Yeah, yeah. Um, the first time I talked to Allegra about like neuroplastic kind of pain, she was very resistant for that exact reason. She said it sounded kind of like victim blaming. Mm-hmm. Like I have this disease and you're telling me that it's my job. It's, it's my fault because I believe that it's painful. Well, right. N- it's not your fault. It just means how I frame it, that it m- makes it feel hopeful for me is that it's an opportunity. I have the chance to reduce my experience of pain. I have an option, an opportunity. There's something I can do to make myself feel better. I don't have to wait for medical intervention. This is also, I learned Tai Chi from a doctor of Chinese medicine. And, um, you know, your body ha- makes medicine to heal itself. And so it's psychological, it's physiological, it's, it's, it's a thing that's full of hope. Yeah, it's harnessing the power that already exists inside your embodied brain. Exactly. When, the first time I talked to someone who was like real resistant to this, they said the same thing, that they felt like it was blaming the victim um, and my response, it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone like make the case that like turning toward your internal experience with kindness and compassion was victim blaming. Mm-hmm. And my response was, it is the only thing you really have control over. You're not in control of your genetics or the home where you were raised or like the quality of the air and water you consumed for like so many years, formative years of your life. You're not fully in control of like the people you're surrounded by now. You can make some choices about that, but like if you've got kids, children living in your house, like you don't have a lot of choice about not having those kids living in your house, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like if you married somebody, like it's gonna take a lot not to be married to that person anymore. Yeah. So like you don't have a lot of control over almost anything except this one thing yeah where you absolutely get an opportunity to turn toward your internal experience with patience curiosity kindness and motherfucking compassion <laughs> in order to like harness the mischievous scamps who live in your brain and are trying to turn your disease, your genetics, your toxins that you've been exposed to, all that stuff into a life that does not feel worth living. You get to turn toward that and be like, guess what? My life is worth living and uh, you and me are gonna work together. Yeah. The first time I met with my Jungian flavored psychologist, I went and being like, hi, my name is Amelia. I have uh, clinical depression. I've had it for years. I'm medicated for it. And so that's the thing I'm dealing with. 
And she said, did you ever think that your depression has something to teach you? And I just started bawling, crying, like, how could you think that this horrible experience could be good for me or would be anything positive at all? It's terrible and I hate it. And she said, I went back the next week and she's like, I, I thought I wouldn't see you again. And I was like, oh, no, well, I, I'm OK with challenges and I, you know, I don't quit things. Also, you're a good girl who does what you're told. I'm a good girl who does what I'm told. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But it took like maybe three years and I was saying to her, turns out my depression had something to teach me. <laughs> my experience of it was so negative that I was also afraid of it. Yeah. And I didn't want to think about it or give it the benefit of the doubt or be compassionate towards it. I just wanted to get rid of it. Like I wanted to get rid of my knee pain. Like I wanted to get rid of my shoulder pain, neck pain, back pain. Like I just wanted to get rid of it and I didn't want to have to like... I didn't want to have to be nice to it because it was being, it wasn't being nice to me. Right. It was being mean to me. Right. Um, but it turns out, you know, when you turn toward it with kindness and compassion, even though it's being mean to you, you say, hi, you're, what's going on? Like, what do you really need to tell me? What's, what's under this chronic pain? What are you trying to hide? What are you afraid of? There's something underneath it, behind it. Again, going back to internal family systems with exiles and protectors. And, like, really trying to be kind and compassionate to a thing that's causing you suffering. Right? Because, like Loki, even though they are mischievous scamps who cannot be trusted, deep down the reason they are that way is because they're afraid of being alone. Yeah. Aww. My knees weren't afraid of being alone. My knees were afraid of being seen as a person with feelings. <laughs> yeah. But they were afraid. Yeah. Fear Which so I guess... often is what underpins these things. Oh, uh, yeah, it was... But fear and rage are, like, they hold hands. They're friends. Yeah, they're, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, they're, yeah. Fear, rage, insecure attachment. They're all friends. Yeah, and that they, they manifest often sometimes when it's you physical go pain. stress response cycles. and Because get you get told... Stuck someplace. That and... you're not allowed to have emotional feelings. So instead right. of emotional feelings, you're going to have physical pain. So listen to your body, but be wiser. You, your body has a lot of wisdom. Yes. But so do you. Yeah. And especially if there's been damage. Can we talk about the elephant and the rider metaphor one more time? Oh, sure. Where your subconscious is the elephant going wherever it wants to go. And the rider is your kind of conscious self. And you have some control and means of communicating with the elephant. But in the end... When the elephant wants to go, the elephant's going to go where it wants to go. But sometimes the elephant doesn't see as far, doesn't anticipate dangers, doesn't, isn't aware that there's something waiting, that when they run there, they're going to be safe as soon as they're there. And they think they just need to like freak out right now. And you're like, no, no, no. There's foresight that if we take it into account, it's going to be fine. So sometimes the elephant is wrong. Mm -hmm. And um, get communicating with the elephant so that it understands that this one time it can't just do whatever it wants to do because there's reasons outside that it doesn't understand. Can but, I, uh, I want to yeah? not use the word the elephant is wrong because the elephant isn't wrong. The elephant is right. Mistaken. That it is, it is wise in its assessment of this moment. The rider is wise in its ability to contextualize this moment in a larger world. So the elephant knows what's wrong here. The rider knows where safety is. And it needs the elephant to listen and not just flip the fuck out, but like go to the place where safety is. 
Right. And elephants have a really hard time listening when they're panicked. Yeah. <laughs> so as do as do horses, as do puppies, um, as do babies, as do we all. Right. Yeah. But I do think that this capacity to see into something that doesn't exist, the future, that capacity to anticipate things that aren't true now, but will be true later, is one of the things that's different about humans, humans from a lot of other animals, most other animals. And it is a strength that we can use to our advantage. So it's not a one-way street where we're only listening to the elephant. It is It is a two-way street where our, you know, prefrontal cortex and our concept of understanding things that don't actually exist but are going to exist, you know, is, is, is a wisdom that we can use to add to the wisdom of our bodies. Yeah. This whole time we've been idealizing the owner of the puppy and the, and the elephant as this wise... And, and that's totally true. Yeah. It's accurate, It's com- but it's not complete. So the epilogue is, except when it's not. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and there are times when it's not. Yeah. And how do you discern? Like, my next question would be, how do you discern which is which? But you probably never have that question, right? My body doesn't lie to me. <laughs> when I do the dream thing, my body is always not just honest, but correct that like it tells me what it knows and I can lay on top of that what I know and understand but like in the moment of I experience a thing and my body's telling me something I I do question like is this a because I've had so much you know neuroplastic pain that I do question is this a thing that's happening physically to me or is this a thing that's uh, a manifestation of stress or yeah it takes me time to figure it out, but I'm sure most people don't have as much trouble as I do. But a lot of people do. So, for example, if you go to a doctor and you're like, I have pain, there's sort of like two destructive responses a doctor can have. One is to be like, you know what? You don't have, there's nothing wrong. Therefore, you don't have pain. Right. Right. That's not helpful. But also is to say they search and search and search and they finally find some indication that something has ever been wrong with the body part where you have pain right. and they decide you need <laughs> surgery to fix that. They scapegoat the the, the body part. Broken, yeah. The potent, yeah, yeah, And yeah. you know what? That body part is their job. They specialize in that body part and they yep. want to fix that body part. Good and job, And as doctor. far as they know, if you have pain in that body part, it's because there's a, a brokenness yeah. and they need to fix it. Yeah. Naomi Wolf uh, wrote a book about orgasm. Uh-huh. She sat in a kitchen crying in the middle of the night because the quality of her orgasms, the amount of pleasure she experienced with her orgasms had diminished so greatly. And she said that because of this diminishment in her, the quality, the pleasure of her orgasms was so intense, she had become depressed as a result of that. Her causal story was wow. orgasms less pleasant, therefore depression. Had she read Come As You Are? No, Come As You Are had not yet come out. Okay, okay. Well, good. There's help for her now. Yeah. But the thing is, she went to doctor after doctor after doctor, and they, she literally sat with a spine surgeon and talked about, like, every time she had ever had any sort of injury to her lower spine. Dude. They tracked it down to her falling down an escalator at a mall, after which she had no lasting injury. She ended up getting a steel rod implanted surgically in her spine. So that she can't, like, turn to look over her shoulder anymore. Whoa. Original symptom, less pleasure with her orgasms. Wow. 
my interpretation of this story, depression began. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Orgasms got less pleasurable. Depression worsened. Yeah. Spinal <sighs> surgery is not a treatment for depression. What? Are you sure? It's not even a treatment for any of the causes of reduced pleasure with orgasms. Bear in mind, it was just reduced pleasure. It wasn't reduced frequency. It wasn't reduced ease of orgasm. It was It was just they weren't reduced quality. Oh, God. Right? Wow. And you go to a doctor with a symptom, and the doctor who specializes in a body part is going to locate your problem in that body part. Right. And surgery has a very high placebo effect. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're doing a lot to fix your problem, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to separate the process of healing from your surgery, from the process of healing from the symptom that was supposed to be being addressed. Yeah. So. When I was seeking a diagnosis for my digestive distress that ended up being endometriosis, first thing checked out is digestive stuff, and I was laying on a table, and the... A nurse practitioner was like pushing down on my abdomen in various places and she got up you know right under my rib cage and there was this definite like sharp ow and I said ow and she said that's your stomach like really dismissively as though well you can't have pain in your stomach because that's not related to the things that you've told me before instead of like incorporating this new knowledge into her decision about what like turning toward it with curiosity patience kindness and compassion yeah she dismissed it as being like, oh, that can't be part of the problem because that's not colitis. what we're looking for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's just one example. And what did you say? I, I didn't say anything because I didn't know then just how bad people were at diagnosing digestive problems. Yeah. Like they just go for the first most obvious answer. It's colitis. It's IBS. You know, you have polyps. Nope. None of that was freaking true. None of that was true. Yeah. So anyway, they just dismiss it. And um, yeah. But I've had lots and lots and lots of doctors scapegoat body parts. Like when my knees hurt, it was physical therapy and lose 10 pounds. Yeah. And that's when I weighed 50 pounds less than I do now. Right. Yeah. And how are your knees? My knees are fine. I no longer have any knee pain. (laughs) So just in case people are listening to this and they have like an experience of pain when they're being probed... What you can say, if, if they're like, that's your stomach dismissively because uh, that's not what they're looking for, your response is, that's where the pain is. Yeah. Or that's even... where the pain is. Simple script. It is easy to say those words. It is not judgmental. It's just yeah. a statement of a description of your experience. That is where the pain is. Or that's another place where there's pain. Yes. That, I, that's a place yeah. where I'm experiencing pain. I don't know how that relates to uh, the other symptoms, but pain is there. Yeah, pain is there. Yeah, that. Um, yeah, I'm a good girl. And I do what I'm told. I don't. I don't argue with. Now I do, <laughs> but I didn't at that point. Yeah, because we are all trained to believe other people's opinions about our bodies more than we believe our bodies themselves, and that is not made easier by the fact that our bodies sometimes are mischievous scamps, tricksters who can't be trusted. Y- yeah. And that for all the time we spend learning to listen to our bodies and and being told that we need to listen to other people's opinions about our bodies over our own experience and trusting that, yep. um, it, it is true that sometimes we can't trust it. 
But even so, the solution is not to count on someone else's opinion. The solution is to turn toward the experience with kindness and compassion and curiosity and see why the elephant is not seeing the whole picture or why the puppy is thinking that it, you know, should not be going outside. Because the part of you that is, that behaves as an ideal parent to yourself, the part of you that is kind, compassionate, patient, and curious is also the wisest part of you, wiser than your body. But your body knows things that you don't. Yeah. Even the wisest part of you doesn't know all the things your body knows. Yeah. That's it. That's all I wanted to say. Okay. For this, for this addendum. Yeah. Well, all right then. I hope we haven't like completely undermined everything we said in all the other episodes because <laughs> that was all true too. This is, this is just like, P.S. Everything is more difficult than we said. <laughs> yeah. And that, that's, that is the nature of the feminist survival project. The, the nature of surviving as a feminist is, P.S., this is all much harder than we made it sound. <laughs> yeah. But I also want to say that one of the things that's been important about my training is the Tai Chi, and that Tai Chi is the mutual interplay of opposites. It is always truth and lies mixed together. It is always ease and complication mixed together. It's, yeah, it's these things being true at the same time that makes the universe that is, that's the juice. That's the universe juice mm -hmm. is, is things that are opposite each other being simultaneously true and also part of each other. Yep. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that is this episode of the Feminist Survival Podcast. If any of this was written, it was written by us. I'm Emily Nagoski. And Amelia Nagoski. Music by Amelia. Edited by my marital euphemism. Thank you so much for listening. To fight, 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 and you're like, no, 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 no. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media/podcasts.